You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I am so pleased to welcome Anish Chopra to our podcast. Anish is our ninth and final guest this year, and who better to cap off our second season than the nation's first chief technology officer who served under President Barack Obama. There was a lot that led up to that, though, and I can't help but think of the stepping stones. It was 1995. Anish was at his first job at Morgan Stanley, working in investment banking, and he had a front row seat to when Netscape went public. It was here that Anish saw firsthand how technology, the internet in this case, could make huge changes in the world. Jump forward a decade to 2006, and Anish was serving as the fourth Secretary of Technology for the state of Virginia, where he led technological innovation in the state government. It was a kind of training ground for what was to come as the nation's first CTO. And he's still innovating today as president of health IT company, Care Journey. We're honored to have Anish join us today, so let's get right into this episode. Welcome to There's a Better Way, Anish. Thanks for having me. Your career is quite amazing. Among other things, as I noted, you were the nation's first chief technology officer under former President Obama. And today you're the president of Care Journey. We're going to cover a lot of things in healthcare and in technology in general. But with luminaries in health IT like yourself, we like to start where you started. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you go to school, grow up, and that kind of thing? I grew up as the son of Indian immigrants in New Jersey. Dad went to Villanova and then went home to marry mom. When I grew up, he had shared with me the stories of this famous college classmate of his by the name of Sam Petroda, who was from rural parts of India, but came to this country for graduate school. But Sam was an entrepreneur who was an expert in the field of telecommunications. And the country was going through a transition from analog phones to digital kind of infrastructure for phones. And so he caught that wave and was able to pioneering entrepreneur on the next turn of the crank for innovation in telecommunications. He became a very successful entrepreneur, patent holder, and he sold businesses and had been successful, but decided in his like 30s, after having exited all this, to go back to India for a penny a year salary and effectively became the chief technology officer for India. And in that particular time, the goal was to get access to telephony to all 100,000 plus rural villages. And I grew up learning about the idea that we can use technology and innovation to solve public problems in a way that was different than an argument of, hey, we should subsidize existing telephone lines. I think India had 300,000 phone lines for a nation of 300 million people. And you can say we need a multi-billion dollar subsidy to bring all this Western phone technology to the rural parts of the country. Or another political party would say, well, we can't afford it, low taxes, let the market solve it. And the engineer said, hey, there's a better way. 
we can actually invent a domestic Indian approach that was able to, for $30 million, design a native digital first modern telecommunications pipe. And that allowed the private sector to work off of the open standard to actually extend that telephony. So by the end of the decade, without a huge amount of political subsidy arguments, they were able to extend phone service to every remote village. And that story I share with you because it was in the back of my mind while I was a policy geek and interested in government, I always had the lens of an engineer's mind. So well, let's dig in on your role serving with President Obama as the first chief technology officer for the nation. How did that role come about? President Obama was campaigning and said that part of what he wanted to do was tap the technical capabilities of the country to solve problems. If you remember, President Obama was a bottom-up change agent, not a top-down change agent. And he had seen firsthand from the campaign how technology allowed for everyday Americans to get involved. I don't mean this to be a political statement, but just his philosophy was to bring that mindset to governing. Now, at the time, there were very few state governments that were similarly inspired to put technology in the cabinet rank. Virginia happened to be one of them. I was Virginia's secretary of technology. We were just awarded best managed state, best state for business, best state to raise a family. And the dot that connected was that my governor, Governor Tim Kaine, was a finalist to be vice president. So as the Obama team was doing diligence on Governor Kane, they saw his success managing a world-class government. And it was bipartisan, by the way. We have a tradition in Virginia to have governing be a priority, regardless of party. And that resulted in me serving on the transition team, helping to advise what it is that a technology secretary does in government. Wow. With a focus on healthcare, what we haven't covered there is how did that focus in healthcare happen? So what happened was, if you recall, we're in the middle of economic recovery and the president, to his credit, said, I'm not going to just throw cash in terms of stimulus, which was needed at the time. About $100 billion of the Recovery Act was dedicated to these seed investments for national priorities. So we put $10 billion into the electrical grid. We put 30, 40 billion into broadband expansion. We did work obviously with the High Tech Act for electronic health records deployment. So that portfolio happened before I was even nominated or Senate confirmed. So there was already a healthcare IT agenda that had people in charge of like execution of the plan. We had ONC and they were doing a great job. But specifically, the president wanted an advisor in the White House that could cut across all of the business units or the functioning parts of government and the public-private sector relationships to make sure we were maximizing the value of technology, data, and innovation. And to segue into the next part of our discussion, a big gap in our health IT strategy was it was the last vestige of on-prem, locally constructed software. We were entering the period of internet-based, cloud-based electronic health record systems, the chance to move to modern internet standards for data sharing. And so that whole, what is now the Fire API ecosystem began as a modest $15 million R&D grant that ONC administered that I had a big role in championing. And that, of course, was the beginnings of what now is a regulated internet standard for the entire industry, which I'm very excited about. Absolutely. 
take us through that story of what happened from 2010 or so to today. We wanted to build a more population health-based care delivery system. That was obviously what was anticipated with the later Affordable Care Act, but we had, for reasons of timing and economic reality, we front-loaded the IT investment. And as your audience might know, you don't put tech in front of care redesign. In a dream world, you want care redesign to drive the tech. But that's okay. We were given the hand we were given. So we needed to land a pre-demand signal, meaningful use construct that was really geared towards value-based. We thought we could do that with the subsidies to say, look, I know you don't want to record blood pressure at a discrete place or smoking status. It was seen as like data entry clerk type work and frustrating, but it was critical if you're going to look longitudinally at the population to say who should be engaged to, to reduce their risks of heart attacks. So then the next triple axle piece was that if we could gently nudge the industry over a decade, we could ideally kind of transition the demand signal from government regulation as the requirement to the concept of value-based care, the Affordable Care Act would take hold, how CIOs would tell the EHR systems, this is the way we want to prioritize our work anyway. And we'd emerge like in this beautiful orchestrated 10-year roadmap. We're laughing because obviously we did not land the triple axle. So we had a period of rough patch in terms of did people do the government compliance with gusto and love or was it like minimum necessary to get through the regulatory loopholes to get right back at the fee-for-service features that customers really wanted to buy? And so we had this frustrating underinvestment in stuff that worked and overinvestment in stuff that wasn't really aligned with the vision of where we're heading and increasing pressure points to say, you got to move to these more detailed standards. It's been a bit of a challenge for the first part of the decade, but we come to you with good news. We don't come to you with bad news. The Cures Act, bipartisan, and where we are today, now I believe there is a more balanced demand signal for these value-based features. And the market is building up that natural request. And so the implementation of the FIRE APIs in the Cures Act, the roadmap on where we're heading to solve more progress in more areas, it's going to feel a lot better this next decade than maybe the spotty transactional history we had in the first. Without the first, you wouldn't have the second. There's a lot of progress that's been made. We've got an electronic health record adopted. We have the concept of value-based care. And we keep saying, when is it going to tilt the scales? And it hasn't quite yet. If we could dream the dream, maybe we would have ripped the Band-Aid sooner and said, go to internet-based APIs in stage two and not wait for stage three and Cures Act. So there's a dream where we kind of pulled forward some of the requirements and would that would have put us in a better place? Who knows? But that's the, that's the academic discussion. It's enjoyful to have a, a podcast to discuss. But remember, shirt scripts was a huge part of the moving of the hockey stick up into the right. Nothing made us happier than to have the sure script slides of e-prescribing going up and to the right. And it was like affirmation after affirmation that we can move to digital and it can have an impact. And so to some degree, I wish we had the same up and to the right for the rest of the transaction stack. That is progress that needs to continue to happen. 
Well, so let's talk about that. I mean, there's so much to just talk about in the history, but let's just move on a little bit. So let's go to interoperability because that's where we're headed. You just talked about the Cures Act and all and interoperability, the ability to exchange health information for the right person at the right time when they need it is still evolving. That's the best way to put it. I'm more bullish on where we are now than I think the perception is. So that's why I was keen to have. Oh, so tell me why you're bullish. Okay. Let me do a process reason for bullish and then a substantive reason. The process reason is we flipped it, I think, correctly to engineer interoperability to the patient as the first use case for the new technology standard. And the reason why that's critical is that there doesn't need to be a trust framework and a governance and a national TEFCA and a whole litany of things, the minimum data necessary and B2B business friction and technical challenge. All of that falls by the wayside when a consumer invokes her right of access. And if we could supply that right of access with the technical approach that allows anyone to put their health information on their phone today, Every American can put their medical record, their common clinical data set now called USCDI, on their phone for free if they have an iPhone or an Android phone. For free, without any middleman, vendor, fee structure, it works because everyone knows how to point data to the consumer. And so we spend more time getting the technical standards right in terms of the data model and less time arguing over the, quote, trust framework on how you can request data of me and I can determine whether it's appropriate and then respond with the minimum data necessary and then look up to the contract and are we allowed to share this and do we want to share this and what are the business terms of sharing it? Generation one of interoperability, the original four NHIN networks, two of them were in Virginia, so I had a front row seat. When you start with B2B, and then you want to get technical consensus on data model and technical consensus on transmission method, you're putting a lot of burden. You can barely get out of the room years and hours later with just consensus on what's minimum data necessary when you're asking for data in the context of a care transition. So that's why we've been stuck in treatment only, CCD, minimum data necessary land in B2B interop for the last decade. We're now moving in a slightly different lens because the process was all data elements to the consumer. And now we can reapply that same technology stack to the more thorny business model challenges. And the key transition technology from the consumer facing to the B2B world is the advent of bulk fire. That piece of technology that has now shipped across 270 plus EHR certified products as of 1231-22 when they all had to meet the deadline. We now have the technical ability to implement data sharing, facilitating it point to point without, let's call it special effort as the language of meaningful use called for, or Cures Act called for. That's a gift. Now what's missing are the contracts and the negotiations to unlock it. But maybe this is an assignment your colleagues at SureScripts might say, we're best positioned to facilitate point-to-point data sharing through bulk fire. 
to bring that future interoperability world that seems like it's another half a decade away to something that can be demonstrated this calendar year. Let's go back to the patient and to data being deployed to the patient or the consumer. So having tried some of those things, it does take it outside of HIPAA protection. And most consumers don't know what that means. Yeah. So this is an important part of my, call it volunteer job. With Governor Levitt, with David Blumenthal, with David Brailler, we co-chaired the creation of the Karen Alliance as a kind of a multi-stakeholder collaborative. One of the first deliverables we shipped was a voluntary but enforceable code of conduct. And in the voluntary but enforceable code of conduct, believe it or not, we exceeded HIPAA requirements in terms of trust. As an example, today, there's literally no disclosure when my hospital takes my data, de-identifies it, and sells it to third parties. I get no notice. I get no agency to say that I'd rather not do that. But because it's outside of HIPAA, it happens every day and it's a multi-billion dollar market where people are buying and selling my de-identified data. In the Karen Alliance Code of Conduct, we required any app that agreed to take on this code to publicize what their policy is with respect to de-identification and to make sure that whatever that policy was carried all the way through its supply chain of third-party vendors. Now, are there people that say in their disclosure, we have the right to sell this data and you don't have a choice? I'm sure because that's how the healthcare system operates, but at least there's disclosure. My doctor doesn't tell me that disclosure. My hospital doesn't tell me that's disclosure. And so I thought that was progress. But let's go backwards before we go to problems. Let me describe why that was an opportunity for goodness. As you remember, we made the business decision in our policy that you can keep proprietary data models in healthcare. We regulated the conversion of some of those data elements into what is now the USCDI and made them a FHIR-based data model. So that data element now sits in a format that has no intellectual property constraint. Anyone, you or me, can read a FHIR data model. I don't have to pay anybody for a code set to learn what this FHIR language means in the real world. That's not how the rest of healthcare operates. I have to pay to interpret CPT codes and this and that and the other. Everyone's got a hand in the cookie jar. But in the FHIR data model, it's completely free and open source, which means everybody is moving their proprietary data sets who's subject to regulation into an open data model. This is critical because it then doesn't matter whether the destination is the consumer who's requesting it or I use that to share information for a value-based care contract. That data model is open. So because we built to the consumer first, we got everyone to build version one of an open data model. And the transmission method was to a consumer-designated app triggered by their username and password. With bulk fire, we've now got a second transmission method where you can aggregate patients into a cohort or a registry, and then you can transfer all of the records in that registry 
to a third-party application that doesn't need additional patient consent or to involve the consumer in any kind of administrative friction if they follow existing legal frameworks for data sharing. Okay. All right. Let's go to artificial intelligence. Yes. As as we're talking about interoperability, it's data everywhere. And now we've got this amazing tool that is going like wildfire. It's going at exponential pace across the country, across the world. Rightly so. All right. Right. So I'm more giddy about this moment than I was when we saw the internet blossom. So this feels like I'm a kid in a candy store with excitement about ways to solve big, meaningful problems in a relatively short period of time and at low marginal cost. So let's go. So let's talk about it. Where does your mind go immediately What around artificial intelligence? Let's start there. Well, yeah. I, so I've been speaking of a dream for a digital health advisor or what I refer to as a health information fiduciary service whose role is to basically run decision support in my best interest based on the information that it has about me. So much of our healthcare system is that the data is inert until it's too late. And then we show up in the emergency room and then the systems start running and then everybody starts asking questions and, oh my goodness, putting you on dialysis, even though if we knew you had kidney disease, even just two years earlier, we could have put you on the new meds that can actually eliminate the need to be on dialysis. My goodness, avoidable dialysis. Are you kidding me? How could we have not missed that as an opportunity? So part of this is at scale, if one has access to longitudinal information and is trusted, has access and is trusted, then we can run these models to predict the next best course of action that either might involve me seeing a new doctor, getting a new test, adopting a new care plan. These are all known. If we understood and could read all of PubMed and all of the recommendations. People like me have had an interest of this and you should track for that. And I'm South Asian descent, so I've got a genetic predisposition to heart disease and I should be monitoring and making sure I'm on a statin a little bit earlier, even if the guidelines say this or that. So how do we create a marketplace that will reward health information fiduciary investments? The challenge I see is that the technology is often put to its highest and best economic use, which may be different from the highest and best patient use. Highest and best economic use is, hey, I'm in a Medicare Advantage plan. They need to get revenue by looking up my health conditions. The highest and best use of AI might actually be risk adjustment coding, which is about getting paid more for what I have and the conditions that I have. And I say that in a slightly negative way. I don't mean to be negative. I love everybody. I love MA. I love everything. But our economic incentives today don't reward organizations to invest in consumer decision support. We've got care gap analytics to the doctor. We've got some kind of patient matching. I want to get an appointment with the first available orthopedic surgeon. We might have scheduling systems and access texting and chat options. But fundamentally, should I be going to that doctor for this reason? Or should I be going to see a physiatrist first to do some more conservative treatment of my back pain? Those kinds of decision support systems about 
not accessing the system and not using the thing that I'm looking to get into in a fee-for-service way, there's no financial incentive to build those. And so that's an area where I see great potential in the use of AI in healthcare. I'm not 100% sure that the current economic incentives will drive us towards the highest and best use of this capability. That's really interesting because it's really the combination where you end up is the combination of value-based care and super consumerism. That's what puts this on fire, so to speak. And this is why I'm so bullish on policies like voluntary alignment, where I'm a Medicare patient. I can see any doctor I want. I might go to a primary care doctor and paternalistically, that doctor chose to be in an ACO. So I just follow suit. But you know what? They haven't done anything for me. Maybe in theory, they sent me a letter and said they're going to coordinate my care, but I'm not so sure I know what that means at the moment. But with voluntary alignment, there could be a competing clinic down the street and say, you know what? Check us out. We've got a South Asian heart clinic and we might want to track you. And one of that's going to be monitoring based and data based. And if you want, we can give you some specific guidance based on your health needs. And maybe if I switch to that doctor, I'm not switching my health plan. I'm switching my doctor, I might be enrolled in their value-based care arrangement through voluntary alignment. That's a really powerful change. Oh, sign me up. So CMS is launching that right now, calendar year 22, it really took off in the ACO reach model. Only a couple million people are enrolled in that model, but 10% of them signed a form that said, I want to voluntarily align because you are offering me something that's going to feel like I'm getting more coordinated care. That's a different model, direct-to-consumer value-based, than this sort of paternalistic, you just do whatever you do, and behind the scenes, we're going to true up all the math and the books and everything else. I love consumer agency in voluntary alignment. And so let's, fingers crossed, think that the highest and best use of AI will be in organizations that embrace voluntary alignment, that take total cost of care responsibility, and commit to quality measurement and the like, and that they're going to do all of that in my best interest, they're the ones that are able to see the results of those investments pay out in terms of their uh, shared savings. Oh, that's an amazing vision. As I said, sign me up. It takes the whole idea of patient-centered medical home too, and now puts it in the patients. You've got technology telling me, which is what's happening anyway. Yes. It's, it's right now, it's in my hands, not in my doctor's hands, and I don't have the data I need. My mom and dad are both on Medicare, touch wood, they're reasonably healthy, but they've got chronic conditions. And they go through this process every year where there's an insurance broker, they live in Florida, so they get spammed every minute for MA plans. They want freedom of choice, so they're going to stick with MedSup. But here's the interesting thing. They spend hours with their trusted broker. Do I do MA this year or not? Do I switch my Part D plan or not? Do I choose this MedSup option or not? It's an hours of conversation. Did they ever once get asked by that broker, would you like to be in an accountable care arrangement and would you like to voluntarily align? So it's not just which plan, but which doctor is going to build the services to give you 24 by 7 access, coordinate your care, be responsible. They live literally in the epicenter of value-based and they have no absolute day-to-day reaction to it. They're not offered anything. They don't know if they're in an ACO. Man, we've made this so paternalistic. We don't have to be. Let's be practical. In the dream world, we want AI to be helping consumers make better decisions. 
in the right now world, it's going to be used to deal with denials and call center volume and operational needs. So in an ideal world, you'll have a two by two matrix. What gets me productivity in the enterprise and what gives me improved clinical outcomes? And so you really want to have a portfolio approach of AI projects. And perhaps in reality, we're going to lean a little bit more on the behind the scenes, administrative burden reduction, use cases, and be a little bit more careful about when to introduce. We don't want hallucinations. It's too early. We have not yet trained models on longitudinal, clean health data to give really good information about what to do next. I have a path that I see to move us in that direction. You see a clue of this in the announcement with Epic and with Microsoft, which is that we're going to train the AI models to write really good queries, to ask questions of the sensitive data, if we're not going to give it itself the sensitive data. So then it's like a derivative works of AI, where you're teaching it to ask smart questions but not actually exposing the PHI in the process. So I've spent some time with our technology team on AI, just understanding it and just cleaning the data itself is most of the battle. Yes. So let me, let's separate out these concepts. I think in threes. Today's foundational model, let's call it, it reads the internet and everything that's been written in the internet and is fed that through a machine and these parameters are getting bigger and bigger. So GPT-4 is like a thousand X the size of GPT-3 and who knows where GPT-5 will be, but you can start to feel like it's going to learn everything, whether we actively and explicitly taught it healthcare specific things or not. It's sort of a natural and inevitable training exercise. Not a lot of organizations have the capital to fund the kind of compute necessary to do all of that work. So today that's in the hands of the few, the training. But then we have this opportunity to take that training and to organize it for our specific environment. We can tune it. So say I'm a health plan. I can take all of my criteria for uh, prior authorization, which maybe it doesn't know because it hasn't read those materials. And I can add that additional information into the mix. And so there's going to be a layer of analytic work to to design uh, the fine-tuning step. You're not going to do a lot of data manipulation in that step. You're mostly going to feed it like one of those incinerators. You can throw back to the future style. He threw every bit of food scraps into the machine and it converted to energy. I think it's going to be whatever data sets you have without it being fancily curated will go into this fine tuning step. And then the third layer is the interaction layer. And that's where I was describing the business strategy of, say, teaching it how to fish in a data set that we otherwise don't want it to get access to, and it can learn how to investigate that data set. So that unlocking your sensitive PHI through an AI analyst may be the near-term opportunity to unlock the value, which doesn't require what you're describing, which is pre-generative AI. When you were just doing predictive AI, oh my goodness, you had to label everything. And so 80, 90% of the budget was data labeling. Now that we're in a world of generative AI, it does create a new option to engage with these tools without having to do that data. Great. 
So now you're with Care Journey, where you've been the president for eight years. You took this role over shortly after being the U.S. Chief Technology Officer. So tell me about the mission and what you're doing there. So to rewind the tape, I actually ran for Lieutenant Governor of Virginia after I left USCTO. And my dream was that we would improve the public-private handshake there would be opportunities to problem solve. And I was hoping to bring state governments into the future by saying for health, for energy, for education, assume we have the laws that we have. We now want to execute those laws in a way that help people. We can do a lot more together if we could improve that, what I called handshakes and handoffs. The government's largely agreed to open up a lot of the digital infrastructure. And if we could hand off that information to partners that are trusted to solve problems, we can make a difference. In the Affordable Care Act, one of those examples was that CMS agreed to release the longitudinal Medicare claims data for purposes of provider performance measurement. I can't give my mom and dad recommendations on who the best doctors are because the Yelp reviews are all about things like, is the room clean? And it's not exactly data-driven. So Care Journey was born after my campaign loss because my board chair and a big supporter of mine, Sanju Bansal, co-founded MicroStrategy, had a long history in in technology and data sets, said, Anish, if you want to be on the government side encouraging the private sector to do stuff, why don't you just step over the line, stand on the private side, take a lot of that information that's been public and help make it useful. So we tried half a dozen ideas from Blue Button to a whole range of ideas. We put ideas at the wall and said, which of these are going to have an impact in healthcare? And the one that's taken off is the idea that we can use the Medicare data for purposes of provider performance measurement. And it's still early days, but I'm grateful that we're able to mine the largest linked longitudinal data set with openly available measures of quality and outcomes and to bring that to life through our membership program. We're serving over 130 organizations, mostly ACOs, but health plans and entities like US News, who's now incorporated some of our data into their provider profile pages. I love it because I feel like I'm continuing the work I was doing in government just on this side of the public-private handshake. So we're going to wrap up here with a couple of questions I always ask. And it is perfect right after you talk about the ideas that you put on the table around how you can bring public and private together for a project. What inspires you? How do you get inspired? So Sam Petroda was my inspiration that you can actually make meaningful change to a billion people by bringing technology, data, and innovation to solve problems. What a great high on problem solving if I'm not arguing over a tweak to an old law, but I'm actually engineering a better way to do what's already in the political domain is consensus. So boy, oh boy, I wake up every day thinking about how do we do more of that in energy and health and education, banking. Yeah, that's amazing. Inspired from a very young age and still today is what inspires you. That's great. And what excites you most about healthcare today? It is the creation of the health information fiduciary. I see the sort of earliest of indicators that value-based care organizations in total cost of care with a voluntary alignment and these new technologies, they're going to usher in a completely better care experience without any new law or any new action and budget. We can make the current systems work better. And so that To see members of Care Journey I love work on those problems gives me joy. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. You've got the history of where we've been. 
and how we got where we are and the vision for where we need to go. It's just been a delight talking with you. Thanks so much for joining. There's a better way. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Our conversation today, Anish, was a great reminder for why I work in healthcare and for why the work we're doing here at SureScripts is so important. I love how you spoke about making meaningful change by bringing together technology, data, and innovation to solve problems and how that can be done at scale for a billion people, like your father's famous classmate, Sam Petroda, who helped to modernize telecommunications in India. Of course, I'm biased, but I love what you said about nothing making you happier than to see the hockey stick of e-prescribing moving up to the right, in no small part because of SureScripts. And this affirmed that we can make a digital transformation in healthcare. And I love when President Obama needed a White House advisor who could bridge public and private partnerships in the name of technological innovation. Everything you've done in your life, like serving as Virginia's fourth Secretary of Technology, meant you were ready for the role. Thank you for being on our show today, Anish, and for inspiring both me and our listeners. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.